Welcome in, everybody. Bleeding Clara and Cobal. Trey Fitzgerald here along with producer Ryan Hale. Great show coming your way today with Chris Camrani, formerly of the Salt Lake Tribune, longtime RSL beat writer, now covering soccer, Utah football, and a lot of other, I would say, large-scale either feature or enterprise stories for The Athletic. If you do not have a subscription to The Athletic, please get one. It is um, the place for sports journalism. And I've cultivated my feed across many different sports interests and writers. Everybody that I think has covered MLS, NBA, uh, sports media in general, sports business in general, a lot of the heavy hitters from the last decade or so in the magazine and or newspaper and or radio TV sides have migrated towards the athletic. So that's enough of uh, my advertising for them. Hopefully they become a sponsor of our show, Ryan. But uh, it was great to catch up with Camrani on the heels of a story that, that just – I think recently dropped on The Athletic regarding the Real Madrid visit to Utah. Some great anecdotes in that story surrounding how the game came together, the audacious idea for Dave Checkets to create that early franchise relationship between the two clubs. And as we find out in the story and from Chris, the impact that that game and that visit to Utah had on the political landscape that allowed the stadium in Sandy to get built and ultimately maintain RSL's presence here for the foreseeable future in Utah. So great stuff with with Chris Camrani. We get into a little bit of um, what it's like to cover teams in a COVID uh, era where access is different and restricted. Um, We talk a little bit about Uh, the social climate in terms of how we receive information in media. You know, all these issues are very uh, fragmented, are very nuanced, but they all converge in a sports uh, context and specifically for us in a Real Salt Lake context. So great conversation there uh, with Chris Camrani. Can't wait for everybody here to hear it. Hopefully hearing Chris talk about his time as a student at the University of Utah, his inability to get tickets to the Madrid game as a poor college student, um, and then talking through his experiences uh, with Dave Checkets, John Kimball, David Beckham, etc., as as that game uh, came and went. Hopefully that sparks your favorite memories. As always, we do want to hear from you. We want to hear your takes on... Uh, RSL's past, present, and future. You can share those in multiple ways. So uh, please go to anchor.fm slash claret and cobalt, hit the message function, or uh, drop us a, a voice memo from your phone and just email that over to rsltray at gmail.com. And Ryan and I will incorporate those into upcoming episodes. Hopefully, we're getting close to an MLS season in terms of kind of recent news and notes for RSL. I think uh, the big headline is Aaron Herrera's U.S. men's national team debut, a 7-0 win over Trinidad and Tobago. Aaron starting and playing, I believe, 78 minutes, earning high praise from U.S. MNT coach Greg Berhalter and Ryan, you know, we talk a lot about the infrastructure, the development opportunity that the academy provides for for young players in in our favorite club. But what kind of uh, pride did you feel or see with Aaron Herrera being one of, I think, six six players on the U.S. um this weekend to earn their first caps. I love it. I love seeing our guys out there with the the USA on their chest. Um, yeah, I was, I wasn't, uh, totally expecting him to get the start. So I was really excited to see him get the start. Um, also I got to throw this one in for my Monarch people out there and, uh, you know, the recently signed Noah powder, Noah powder. Yeah. Got got run out there with 
Trinidad and Tobago. That's that's a great thing. Just seeing that our our the RSL guys out there representing their countries. Yeah, I would like to see like someone like Noah have a have an international career. You know, get some sure. Uh, get some good games in, but yeah, just, uh, that's something that's, uh, um, it's pretty validating to see those guys out there. I mean, I think anybody who's been coming to Rio Tinto for the last, you know, five years knows, you know, knows what Aaron Herrera is all about. And it's, I'm glad that people are finally starting to notice him. It's probably means he's going to be generated subject to more rumors, (laughs) more rumors, uh, but you know, go go get paid, Aaron. You know that's what I gotta say. But yeah, no, it's good to see our guys out there. Well, he's he, obviously a critical piece for for Freddie this year. Berhalter said it; he looked good. But I mean, with my eyes, he looked great. Yeah, the whole team looked great. Um, Going to be interesting to see what Berhalter is able to do in terms of setting up uh, future games. But uh, in terms of uh, Concacaf qualification, the the future looks bright and. Former RSL man Alvin Jones also started for Trinidad. So Alvin didn't get much of a chance last year, I think, to to show off what he had because of uh, uh, visa restrictions in a COVID era. So a little bit of a stunted, uh, you know, RSL-related tangent in terms of, uh, of of that game this weekend. But all of our best to Aaron Herrera. Hopefully he's wearing the, the RSL badge for for years to come, but as a – as a young emerging national team player, maybe he gets a chance if the Olympics happen. He and Glad and Achoa, I think, are the guys that, that should be eligible if there is a, a Tokyo Olympics this year. So we'll see how that all plays out. Um, hopefully, those Olympic absences, if they happen, don't converge with Albert's Euro absences uh, because that could be damaging to, uh, you know. RSL's 2021 uh, core uh, as the season, if it comes online, as expected, April 3rd is is the projected date pending uh, CBA and and COVID and a lot of other uncertainties that that could affect the start of of this year. So we'll get into that in future episodes. But for now, enjoy this great conversation with our friend. Chris Camrani making his first, but certainly not his last, appearance on Bleeding Clarence Cobalt. All right, welcome back. Bleeding Claret and Cobalt, Trey Fitzgerald, producer Ryan Hale, uh, pleased to be joined today by Chris Camrani. One of our favorite writers over at The Athletic, my personal opinion, The Athletic is the beacon of sports journalism in the modern era. So, Chris, we really appreciate you taking the time today and uh, kind of shining a light a little bit on not only your RSL history, but also the current state of media, journalism, sports, et cetera, et cetera. It's nice because this is the first time. Uh, in the eight or nine years that we've gotten to know one another, that the tables have been turned and you're asking me the questions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, questions, conversation, whatever. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so first, let's start with your awesome story on how the Real Madrid game came to be with Real Salt Lake and that relationship. What was it like uh, for you to put that piece together? I think you you mentioned with Spence Checkets it was something you had – kind of been thinking about uh, uh, rehashing for a while. Yeah, so uh, going back to my days on the beat, uh, it was something that I always figured could be a cool story if told the right way and if given the right amount of runway. And to retell uh, a story and encapsulate a week in time 15 years ago, you have to talk to as many people as you can, as you know that I did. And I think for me, and I told you this when we spoke, I never really understood the intersectionality of what that week meant for the long-term viability of the club outside of, you know, back then I was, let's see, I was, you know, 20 years old, a student at the U and you know, soccer fan. So I just knew that Madrid was coming to town and I couldn't afford a ticket. So I had, I had some buddies who were lucky enough to go. Uh, my wife actually went, she was in high school at the time she went on a high school date to that game. So she's lucky, but like, I was, I was just this, I was just this guy that was kind of enthralled by the idea of Madrid coming 
to Salt Lake back then. And it wasn't until many years later that I realized that the game represented so much more to the long-term viability of the club here in Utah outside of a few, you know, um, memories that people were able to glean from either watching the game on KSL or, or being there in person. Right. Um, in talking to Dave Checkets, John Kimball, many, many others, I don't know, did any, did any of them talk about what they realized or didn't realize at the time? Because my memory is just that Dave, we put on, you know, the U.S. Costa Rica game in 05, Madrid in 06, like some of these big international type events were critical to proving that there was an appetite for the sport in this market. But uh, do you think those people that helped put that game together realized even at the time the impact for the long-term viability of the club in this market? So that's, that's an interesting kind of subset to this whole thing is I didn't know that the groundwork for this game was laid, you know, a couple of years before when, when Dave went to Madrid. And I think out of all of the anecdotes I was able to glean, that was really the most enlightening that, you know, his week in Madrid in the summer of 04 really laid the groundwork for not only this game, but for the name of the club, the crest of the club. And um, really it was just a big swing for a, a franchise that really had no business doing it, if we're being totally honest. I mean, it, it was it was a big time risk, a multi-million dollar risk by, by Dave and his people. And uh, I guess it just goes to show that um, if you have a vision and if you're willing to, uh, you know, take that leap of faith, things might work out. And, you know, I was able to talk to to Dunny for this piece. And, you know, I didn't really know about his history with that week and getting married and leaving on his honeymoon. But like, even back then he like remembers thinking like, Holy shit. At the time he had just recently retired. How do you manage to pull a game like this off with a club that was, you know, struggling, wasn't like exactly on the up and up in the summer of 06 to all of a sudden, you know, having the, uh, arguably the most star-studded team in the history of club football stepping off, you know, their private 747 chartered plane at Salt Lake City International. Crazy, crazy. You know, I love it. Dunny always refers to that as the bringing the Yankees to Timbuktu and the audaciousness of of Dave Checkett's and his vision on so many levels, uh, but especially surrounding the name Real, having the Madrid game, etc., the whole relationship. And were there... Were there some anecdotes or some fascinating pieces of this story that that ended up on your uh, cutting room floor, if you will? A lot of it, a lot of the the morning of um, didn't get to make it because it was just such a long piece as it was. Yeah. Like, um, you know, you recommended talking to Alan Ridlisbacher, who was, you know, the head of corporate communications at Leighton Construction. And he was he was great to talk to because he has such a photographic memory as you do. And he took me through step by step, like, you know, having to outsource in a few hours time, making sure they got privatized construction helmets for the likes of David Beckham and Roberto Carlos and Rude Van Nistelrooy and um, him going to the old RV park next door to beg them to be able to use power for the stage for, for the announcement of the game when you guys suck the shovels into the dirt. And, you know, I didn't know that they didn't clear that field until the morning of the announcement, just yeah. a few hours before I, I had assumed that maybe it had been done that Friday, but you know, Alan talked about being out there at 7 AM with the, with the guys ready to, you know, bury their caterpillar shovels into the ground to take away all these huge thistles and weeds and grass, but they had to wait until 8 a.m. because they didn't want to disrupt the folks sleeping in the RV park and risk losing power for the stage. So there was just so many, wow. you know, little anecdotal things that happened, um, you know, throughout this week. And that one kind of stands out for me in terms of being left on the cutting room floor. And I mean, the, when you talk to so many people as I did and you try to rehash, you know, that week, you, you, you aren't able to include everything that you right. kind of fall in love with from a, from a storytelling perspective. But, um, th I would say that, and a, a little bit of, uh, 
the stuff from the from the Friday night dinner at Lakai and mm-hmm. and thing and things kind of just being thrown into flux. But no, I mean it was it was great. I like I said, I mean that that story I think being about three thousand words, and you know me, I probably could have written it in six and and been comfortable with it. Talk to me, I guess, a little bit about how um, storytelling has maybe changed since you were the Salt Lake Tribune beat writer for RSL, because I, I don't know that I have the proper perspective for how much media, journalism, et cetera, in our world has has evolved. And my personal feeling is it's probably negatively in a lot of ways, but you know, when when you and I worked together, you know, the Tribune was, I would say, the bellwether media outlet in Utah, uh, really set the tone for everybody else. You did a fantastic job covering um, an emerging sport, an emerging soccer team um, as a serious journalist on a on a daily beat. And now you're you're with a national uh, publication, as I mentioned before, I think. This is, you know, one of only a handful of places that I personally go to to get a real unvarnished look at what's happening uh, in the sports world. And, and, and now the sports world is tackling a lot of bigger, bigger issues. And um, I appreciate everything that you and Amy are doing with Spencer Checkets on Reality Check because you guys are able to kind of marry a lot of these concepts between – a changing world, a changing community here in Utah uh, through a lens that at least starts on sports. So um, I apologize for a, a rambling, <laughs> wide-ranging question, very philosophical. But um, I guess when you look back at, at covering RSL for the Trib and then yeah. now look at RSL from, you know, really the outside, but you've collaborated with, with Meg Linehan and Sam Stasekel and and others on on some RSL stories off the field right. as well as uh, this fantastic Madrid piece. Um, I guess how would you describe the the evolution of the current state of of journalism? Yeah. So um, when I first came onto the beat, it was the fall of 2013 when our staff at the Tribune was kind of thrown into the air because it's a domino effect so often when you're on a sports staff at a paper because, you know, my good friend Bill Oram got a job covering the Lakers uh, at the Orange County Register. You know, Aaron Falk, who had been covering RSL for most of 2013, got the bump up to the jazz beat. And then all of a sudden, you know who was, was no longer just covering high school sports. I was thrust into the RSL beat, which at the time, you know, was considered one of the most important beats at the paper because nobody gave as much, you know, runway and attention to the club as the Tribune did, going back to its inception when uh, Michael C. Lewis was, you know, the first beat writer and, and, and really was able to transcribed the rise of that club and followed them through MLS cup in 09 and, you know, got to travel with the club during the CONCACAF champions league runs, uh, kind of during the last heydays of, of newspapers. Um, so me being thrown into the mix in 2013 in the middle of the club getting its, you know, continued rise toward another MLS cup run, it was stressful, but I mean, it was, it was learning on the fly and, and, and luckily I had some institutional knowledge of the club and history of the club, having gone to matches at Rice Eccles Stadium when I lived just a block away during my college days. I knew the historical context of the club, but having to cover soccer on a day-to-day basis wasn't that difficult for me because I felt like I knew what, what fans wanted to read outside of the standard stuff that you were kind of supposed to be dealing with on a day-to-day beat basis while you're working at a print publication. You're at the time you're servicing the, the daily beast that is the print paper and ensuring that you hit word marks and all of that stuff. But there was also this kind of freeing existential existence <laughs> on the internet where you can, you know, blog some things that do get left on the cutting room floor and be able to break news 
at the wee hours of the night that can't make the print paper and and you just you just learn so much and i had the luxury of you know traveling with the club for the first few years yeah. on on the beat on the west coast i mean we didn't go east but anytime rsl played in the pacific northwest or in california or in colorado i was on those trips and so many of those trips I think what people don't understand is it gives you more clout with the players and the coaches because you're there and you're, you're kind of traveling with them and you're experiencing what they're experiencing. And I think that just goes such a a long way. And I think that, and we've talked about this before, that's kind of one of the last endeavors that I think MLS has to overcome from a media coverage standpoint is, Sooner or later, if you want it to continue to, you know, have that uphill climb, you want to be able to have beat writers, whether they work for newspapers or other digital outlets, travel with those clubs the same way they do with the NFL and the NBA and Major League Baseball and and be at just every single game. Um, and, and all of this laid the groundwork for, um, you know, the balancing act of knowing how I had to satisfy the daily beast of the print versus wanting to take long swings and big swings at stories that I thought no one else had done, um, on the beat. Like, I think I remember my first really big swing was in 2013 when I came to, I think it was you and Sam and Jane. And I said, Hey, nobody's ever talked to Ned Grabavoy about, you know, his, his, his young twins who, you know, had some complications after they were born. And, um, you know, that was really the first, not out of the box story, but something that I wanted to kind of relate to readers outside of Jason Christ's diamond formation. You yeah, know, sure. I, 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 I think, um, there is a sense of imposter syndrome for me when it comes to the tactical side of the game. I feel like I understand it. Um, but for me, I feel like the, the wheelhouse for me has always been to be able to pursue stories that I think. I would want to read and other people would want to read. And that slowly continued on and on, on the, over the years on the beat. And uh, eventually, since I took this role at The Athletic about a year and a half ago, that's given me the opportunity to not only um, search for those stories, uh, hyper-focused from a local standpoint, whether it's RSL, University of Utah, or the Jazz, but even nationally. And I, and I think to your point earlier, that's that's one of the very underrated um, <laughs> aspects of having this gig is you just have the opportunity to, to have a good enough story. You can pitch it and see where it takes you. Right. Um, I would give Michael Anastasi and I apologize. I don't know where he is now, but I believe he's at the Tennessean. Oh, still. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, he's a guy that came from LA in the early days of MLS, when the Galaxy were a big deal, when Kobe Jones' billboards were all over the 405 and the 10 and everything, and obviously the Galaxy won a lot in those early years. And then he he came to town here in the Trib, and he treated soccer um, precociously, I guess, is, is one of the ways, presciently, uh, yeah. is a way to put it. And that put Michael C. Lewis, who didn't think RSL would last five years, um, <laughs> Falk, yourself, Maddie Lee, yeah. uh, in a great, I think, position to to kind of connote to this community what you know what certainly Dave Checkett's vision was, and then and then later what Deloy Hansen's vision was for what this club could could mean in the community, and and you know since you left the beat, obviously RSL has grown tremendously in terms of infrastructure with a USL team. Uh, an NWSL team now departed and uh, the academy facility out in Harriman, which I think is a true difference maker for this club as a asset, whether you want to call it distressed or not because of COVID, <laughs> because of the ownership transition uh, that's pending. Um, how, how do you feel as you've collaborated with, with others um, at the athletic and just kind of followed things how do you feel this club is is currently viewed uh, through that those lenses? I guess. Yeah, it's tough. I think um, locally the club has a lot of work to do, and it depends on what lens you want to view that through. You can view it through 
a negative one if you want to be a little pessimistic and think the club lost a lot of supporters, a lot of followers over the years, over the recent years, based on the club. Or you could view it optimistically and say there is still a tremendous amount of, of leeway for this club to continue to grow and revitalize a fan base and, and frankly, reach different parts of, of northern Utah and, and even southern Utah, if you want to make that argument, that that can be brought into the fold to make it feel as it once was, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, during the height of, you know, 08 to 14, I, I just think like any time you walked into that stadium, you felt like you were going to witness something special, if that makes sense. You were going to see some of the best players in the league perform. And at the end of the day, I know people like the bells and whistles, and I know that they like the free Wi-Fi. At the end of the day, fans just want to have the best possible product on the field. That's all they want. And I think that that goes through any sport in any league in the world. I, I, I think that's something that the club really lost somewhere along the way. And I don't think it's going to be that hard of a sell. You just have to have the right people in place to, you know, galvanize a fan base that desperately needs galvanizing. Yeah. How difficult, I guess, do you think that is not just for RSL, but for all of MLS in the current, COVID environment, so it's looking more and more like 2020 and 2021 seasons will be greatly impacted by COVID due to uh, butts in seats restrictions. Yep. And MLS is still at a stage in its life cycle where those where that game day revenue and game day attendance is more critical than ever because there aren't the big media deals that the NBA, the NFL, and, and other uh, major sports have and, and that soccer generally enjoys all around the world. So I guess from you know from an athletic perspective and from a Chris Camrani fan perspective, how, how does MLS sort of, I guess, try to break through the clutter of this uh, a second COVID-affected season? And, you know, is that access, is that content, and how difficult are your, I guess, access abilities? Yeah. Because um, you talked about traveling earlier, and now you're generally restricted to to Zoom scrums, which uh, <laughs> probably aren't uh, beneficial from a from a unique journalism perspective at all. No, I, we'll start on the back end there. Uh, that's absolutely been the most difficult part of this whole thing. And I want to preface this by saying that I understand that most of us in the journalism industry that get to work at home and, and still have a job, we're extremely privileged. So I'm, I don't want to make any bones that like I'm, I'm suffering like so many other folks in the country and the world who have real jobs. Uh, I always like to say that my job is kind of fake, um, even <laughs> though some people might disagree. But to your point, based on kind of based on what the athletic challenge to writers to be able to do things differently with in the era of Zoom, as you mentioned, like those Zoom conference calls are absolutely brutal. You, you aren't able to get uh, you're not able to see things. And I think for, for me, I'm a visual learner. I, I, I see things that give me ideas as opposed to. I'm tuned into a Zoom and I'm hearing like four or five very canned, typical questions. And then that person, player or coach is kind of shuttled off and you, and you have the next one. Those things are very difficult from a pure storytelling reporting perspective. Obviously, there are ways to get around that. And we've, and we've shown that we can do that. Uh, but I do think from a media perspective, the league will face that difficulty again, as you mentioned in 2021. I, I, I want to believe by maybe the tail end of the summer, um, early fall, we might be in a better spot. Um, and I don't know what clubs will be allowed fans in the stands. I would assume that there will be more in 2021 than there were in 2020, considering um, the, the vaccine rollout, however flawed that might be. There will be places in the league that want to have butts in the seats. That being said, MLS is one of those leagues like I guess pretty much every league that needs that fiscal infusion yeah. 
to help everything kind of motor along. And when you aren't able to sell tickets the way you usually do, if you aren't able to have concession stands open, all of these things matter in the long term. And I think you can make an argument they matter a lot more at mid-level to smaller market clubs like RSL compared to, say, the LAFCs of the world who have a, a billion Hollywood owners who are probably willing to lose a little bit of money. Um, so I, I think it's going to be difficult. First and yeah. foremost, I have to I have to pay attention to what my colleagues at The Athletic are reporting from a collective bargaining agreement standpoint, yeah. because that that is still, I think, the most important hurdle to get through and as you know you've you've been part of the league when they've you know gotten to this point before I, I do think that they will get to an agreement I don't think that a work stoppage um, you know behooves anybody and that, that's my personal opinion I, I do think um, sooner or later they, they will come to terms but this is going to be a, a, another tough go for MLS and it's fascinating to see considering up until 2020 that upward trajectory was just kind of straight up. I mean, yeah. they, they were they were expanding. You're having teams wanting to buy in for an expansion right fee that is like over three hundred million dollars, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the last I mean, Charlotte was three fifty. Yeah, I believe that's the most recent uh, expansion fee. Um, so yeah, and and like you said, it's it it's going to be a, a kind of sit tight endeavor for MLS, I think, throughout the spring and the summer if we get an on-time on start to this season. How bullish, I guess, are you on the future of MLS and the future of soccer in this country? Because you've got that expansion fee. You know, Columbus is opening a new stadium this year. Austin kicks off with a new stadium as an expansion team. It seems like there's a ton of momentum down there, as much as there can be, I guess, in a in a COVID-affected uh, world we live in. You've got the World Cup coming here in 2026. It would appear that once COVID, that we all emerge from COVID, and again, who knows how long before you know there's uh, mass confidence and mass comfort in terms of uh, sidling up next to 25,000 other people at a, in an outdoor yep. venue or even an indoor venue in the NBA. But um, it would seem like to me that the next decade, whenever kind of normalcy resumes, that it, it should be maybe not a straight-up trajectory like, like you just referenced right. for MLS, but it seems like a pretty, a pretty steep uh, a curve, I would imagine. Yeah, and I, I think from an on-field perspective, I'm most interested to see how existing teams keep up. And by existing teams, I mean teams that haven't entered the league in the last five to eight years. Right. I, I do think that the competition from a player personnel perspective is going to get so much more stiff with more teams coming in. You're just getting spread more thin and thin. And, and if MLS continues to be a league basically owned and operated by the league itself as a single entity system, you are going to have some constraints. And that's always going to be that, that existential question that we talk about from an MLS versus the world perspective. Like how is MLS going to be able to close the gap on Liga MX? Well, there you go. I mean, we've, we've heard these, these arguments a million, a million times, but I, the way I think about it is, is you're having big, big time clubs coming in and the likes of Austin and, and I'm, I'm people might not consider Charlotte big time, but just look what Nashville did in its first year in a pandemic. They, you know, competed in the playoffs and then, you know, it, it's going to get more difficult. And I, and I'm, I'm just most interested to see how clubs like RSL, uh, Portland Timbers, Colorado Rapids, FC Dallas, so on and so forth, how they kind of evolve with the times because the reality is, is pretty much everybody, and I guess the crew last year are, are, an, are is an example notwithstanding. But you have to be able to take risks and splash cash, and that's going to be made more difficult considering the losses that clubs will have sustained throughout 2020 and 2021. But as you mentioned, sooner or later, once we're on the other side of this thing, you're going to have to continue to invest an insane amount of money to keep up if you want to keep your fan base invigorated. To that end, um, with 
with the expected continued change in Utah demographics, what are maybe some of the things you think a new owner or ownership group needs to do to capitalize on on the infrastructure or maybe recapture the relevance that RSL uh, had in this market? Is so yeah, I'll start out. Uh, I think so. I, I do think, I do think to your point about the, the Academy and the facility perspective, I do think that is real. And I say that because over the recent years, I have been able to have, you know, one-on-one talks with guys like having played at pretty big clubs and they kind of said, this rivals what we dealt with in Europe in terms of a, of a wow facility perspective. Maybe, maybe it's not, you know, to the level of what city had while Nedham was there, but to, but to hear guys like that who have said, who can say this is either better than what I had in England or in Croatia or in Germany. And to have that in our backyard in Harriman, I think that speaks to what, the infrastructure strength is for, for, for a future owner ownership group. Uh, that being said, I, I just think you have to kind of disentangle yourself from everything that has transpired the last four to five years, meaning you, you can't make it so much of a monopoly the way it was under Deloitte Hansen. Like you can't have so many things tied up into this club. You need to have some freedom to go out and market yourself and get varying sponsorship deals and go to places that you never had. And that's not to say under Deloitte, RSL didn't do a good job of, you know, hitting certain, you know, demographics of this state. They did. But I just think to your point, the way that this league or the way that the state is growing so rapidly, mm-hmm. it's just going to get more diverse. It's going to get more expensive. You're going to get people who are moving in from the West coast and the East coast who are soccer people that might be, you know, galaxy fans or Red Bulls fans, but want to be involved with their local club. So there, there are varying levels to this conversation that, that RSL has to be willing to go out and make an impact in the, in this community because they have to, I mean, fair or not, as are always going to be the alpha in this market. And I think right behind them, it's going to be Utah and BYU as, you know, two A, two B. But I don't think it's impossible for RSL to make a steady climb in terms of being relevant with, with this state's population. But that being said, to your point, you said, is it all about winning? I really, I really think it is. And, and especially here, and we've talked about this too, this state is so unique because for how small it is, it's never really suffered through very, very long winless droughts, whether from a professional level or a collegiate level. You're talking about a place that in the, in the jazz, they made the playoffs for 20 straight years. You're talking about RSL who won a championship in the first five years of existence and, and went to a continental cup final. You're talking about colleges that have historically won national championships or competed for, you know, going to the Rose bowl. It's a, it's a difficult place to impress. And it's odd to say that because they're just basically used to being part of the conversation nationally. But I think what RSL has to figure out is how do you become a part of the conversation locally? That's a fascinating point, Chris. And I guess kind of putting back our, our big lens on the current state of media and journalism, how how do, not just RSL, but how do clubs, brands, teams, organizations, et cetera, in a current environment break through the clutter? Because, you know, for me, I guess I'm old school, right? It's all about credibility, and I think the credibility comes from third parties that the Athletic or the Salt Lake Tribune or KSL or whoever provide – generally um but you know everybody is so bombarded from their phones and it's random tiktoks that go viral or <laughs> whatever that's not a you know it's entertainment but it's you know and this is i guess the problem this is a separate podcast with with politics is that is that all the news sources have become entertainment products and there seems to be a lack of of really core journalistic values um sure and we don't need to get into all that right now, but I guess as a as somebody who's who's covered you know a difficult 
series of events, I think, around Utah football, uh, specifically like Ty Jordan, right? And yep. that tragedy. And then, you know, somebody who's um, you've collaborated on the, the NWSL decision to remove the Royals from Utah. You've, um, you know, been through all the stuff with, with Sam and the athletic on whether it was Andy Williams um, or the culture, et cetera, uh, that had existed at RSL. I guess what is your not desire, but I mean, like, how do you think people need to be communicated with and to and through yeah. in order, like, for credibility to re-emerge in our daily lives? Yeah, that that's a great question, and that's something I think that we've really seen, um, unfortunately, in my opinion, on the rise throughout the last you know five to eight years is. I I think so many corporations and organizations want to control the message and they're so afraid of not having control that it's only gotten to this point where you're seeing colleges, professional sports franchises hire their, you know, own writers and, and uh, digital teams to kind of not corner the market on storytelling, but you, you, in a way you are still controlling the message And I don't think that's a bad thing, but I think you have to be careful of being over-reliant on that because to your point, people, whether they love it or hate it, are going to more likely go to the independent outlets because that's kind of the way we are raised to consume media in this country, or I guess we were up until four or five years ago. But um, I I guess what I want to see is... I, I, I. the inherent fear that I have based on 2020 is that access for independent outlets will become less than, and I, and I say that meaning, well, there are layers to this conversation. Let me, let me preface this by saying, um, I understand that there will be an apprehension of, of potential COVID infection when it comes to actual in-person things. I think I want to make clear that I think the health and safety of everybody in this, in this world is, is more important than, uh, somebody sidling up to a player and sticking a microphone in their face, three inches away from their face. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, I think, especially from a sports perspective, we just need to be able to continue to have that trust and the accountability because we really haven't seen that either in in the in the last uh, political cycle. And and it's right. interesting how that's bled into sports and. Um, the, the controlling the message thing has always been fascinating to me. And I think it's, that's been ramped up the last few years across the board and in all, in all professional sports and now even down to collegiate sports. Um, but I, I guess my hope is that, um, we as independent, uh, reporters and writers and journalists, we continue to prove to the public that what we do is a worth their time and B is, filled with integrity because I think you unfortunately have to convince people that what you do isn't flawed. And and that's the great test of this time. And I've said this on Spence's podcast is I think like my generation's great task is teaching media literacy to not only the young up and comers, but to people my age and above. And I think, I do think it starts politically, but I do think it trickles down to sports if that makes sense. No, hundred percent. And that's, that's, that's fascinating on a number of levels. Um, let's wrap this up on a, on a much lighter note. Um, what is, what are kind of some of your favorite experiences um, either as, you know, being in school at the U when RSL was at Rice Eccles or, um, you know, being a fan of the sport or covering yeah. the team. What are, what are some of those standout uh, sure. Memories, obviously, besides the Madrid game, which, as you as you uh, elucidated, <laughs> was an <laughs> incredible tipping point for uh, the last twelve years of this franchise's existence. Yeah, so like I mentioned in the story, uh, I think starting off, it was seeing David Beckham at the old Virgin Mega Record Store right. uh, across the street from the Gateway, and being maybe one of six people in the store one being myself, the other being David Beckham, and the fact that nobody else even like saw him or or took notice. 
uh, I, I mean, I, off the field, that's that's definitely like the first. But um, when I worked at the Daily Utah Chronicle, we used to cover RSL when they were at Rice Eccles, and I was I got the lucky draw of covering the game where Beckham scored those two ridiculous free kicks. Sure. Um, I think it I think it was a two two draw. I think yep. Kenny Juker scored in that game, if I'm not mistaken. He did. And uh, I just remember the post-game scene being just so unreal because, like, Beckham got his own specific, like, podium, and there was maybe, like, 20, like, writers, photographers there just for him. And, you know, no offense to the other Galaxy players or RSL players, but nobody else got that. That was the first time that I saw, like, true star treatment up close, and that was my junior year of of college. Um, I guess from a beat perspective... I think that MLS Cup run in in 13 was was awesome for a lot of reasons, mainly because it was the first time I really got to travel with the club and, um, you know, going to Portland and uh, I was covering a high school football championship game that that Friday before. And then I got on a plane Saturday morning and flew to Portland and covered them winning 1-0 at, at Providence Park and then coming home and realizing I'd have to fly to Kansas City and hopefully not freeze to death. Um <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it was fascinating, Trey, because I came in at the tail end of the height of one era and, and really had to had to learn how to transition to covering a team that was locally known as being really, really good and challenging for championships every year. And I don't think the drop-off was that precipitous, but um, it, it, at the same time, it was a challenge, and I do think it strengthened my reporting skills to be able to get to know uh, you know, people on a different level and, and write a little more, uh, critically. And, um, and, and I know people don't believe me when I say this, but players read what you write. I learned that. Mm. I learned that for sure. And, you know, I, I, funny enough, I bumped into, uh, RSL at the airport a couple years ago in the fall of 19, they were traveling to, where were they going? Oh, they were going to Boston and and uh, they were taking the B squad and Luke Mulholland walked through uh, the security line and we just started, you know, <laughs> shooting the shit. And Luke was like, he's like, man, you, you're not taking shots at us anymore. And oh, just being wow. funny, like 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 just being kind of playful and yeah. and, you know, being Luke. And it, it was it was fun to catch up with him. But it was it was uh, it was interesting because uh, you, you never really that your impact will be felt with with players but i think at the end of the day if, if you can say that you did your job well and did it fair it'll take you a long way and i think that for me I, I guess that's the lasting memory is that you know my four and a half years on the beat full time went a, went a long way in terms of still carrying on those relationships today whether it's with um an office uh, you know former employees like you players i mean i like i one of my favorite stories that i've ever done was a story that i never thought i'd be able to was when i pitched nick Ramondo the pk story in december and i said i said i emailed nick out of the blue i was like hey man i know you used to really hate when i'd ask you this (laughs) but like what what are your thoughts about it and and nick was really receptive and and it turned out to be such a cool like fun investigative story and, you know, and, and two weeks later, that that relationship that I was able to cultivate with guys on that team came to fruition again when I got to talk to Kyle uh, kind of for an exclusive retirement Q&A about, you know, stepping away from the game. So there were there were too many great memories from covering the team because I loved going on, you know, road trips to the best parts of the country, in my opinion. I mean, I got to go to got to go to the Bay Area and see my see my dad, got to go to the Pacific Northwest and walk around Seattle and Portland before a game and yeah. just kind of feel feel the excitement in, in the city uh, of, you know, a rivalry match. Um, th- th- those were the those are the memories that stick out for me. I, 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 awesome. I will say I will say, though, Trey, I do not miss being on deadline for those 838 kicks where like I still have PTSD. There was a game that RSL played at CenturyLink where uh, it ended three, two. And I think Andy Rose scored in like the ninth minute. Yeah. And I need, I needed to rewrite my story in about three minutes before they went to print. After so I, I definitely <laughs> stoppage time red card, if I recall. So, yep. 
Yep. So th- those are the things I don't miss. But th- <laughs> but the years on the beat uh, were really formative for for bringing me to where I am today. That's awesome, man. Um, yeah, that Ramondo story. I mean, I was a guy who was around Nick, you know, on a pretty regular basis for about ten years. I learned so much reading that uh, that PK story. And he, I mean, he he finally divulged some of his. Uh, deepest darkest uh secrets in that one that was phenomenal so i'll apologize for my press box behavior during the rice eccles days and and probably you know the rio tinto days and on the road because i was uh you know as you and i have talked about our jobs were always much easier if the team was uh successful and and sometimes you get a little selfish like that and emotional and um and that's where a lot of the passion i think comes from so yeah. Well, I appreciate you having me on. I, I, I will say I do miss the days of, um, you know, being hyper-focused on, on writing a decent lead and all of a sudden feeling like an earthquake transpired on press row. And it's because you were, you were pissed that a shot hit the bar or if somebody got a yellow card. Wow. And all this time I thought I was, um, keeping it close to the vest. <laughs> Chris, thanks for your time today and, uh, look forward to having you on, uh, down the road as, as storylines continue to emerge around, Claret and Cobalt. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, buddy. Have a great day. Thanks, Trey. All right. See ya. All right. That's our show. Thanks for listening, as always, to Bleeding Claret and Cobalt, where we celebrate the past, present, and future of Real Salt Lake. If you want to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter or Instagram at Claret Cobalt. We are always up for banter, corrections, omissions, guest suggestions, RSL memories, or whatever. You can also use the message function at anchor.fm slash claret and cobalt, or drop us a voice memo by email via rsltray at gmail.com. This show is produced independently by me, Trey Fitzgerald, and Mountaineer Media. We record at Mountaineer Studios in Draper, Utah. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions or positions of Real Salt Lake. Get to know RSL from the inside out. Thank you for listening. Looking forward to talking to you soon.